So for the last two weeks, we've been learning from Paul about what it means to lay down our rights. What it means to lay down Christian freedoms for the benefits of others. All right. This, the topic came up as an inquiry from the Corinthian church about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. We talked about that back in uh, chapter 8. Uh, the question that started all of this was, can you eat the meat that is sacrificed to idols or should you refrain from it because it was part of a pagan sacrifice? And there were some in Corinth that thought that eating the meat was fine. The, the reason they thought that was because the idol wasn't real. There was no God behind it. There was no, nothing happening with that meat, so the meat should be fine. Right? If there's no power and there's no curses that happen when the, the meat is sacrificed, if there is no blessing that is attached to it, uh, if there's no magical properties to the meat once it has been sacrificed to the idol, then it should be fine. They said, we know it's fine. It's not, it's not an issue. We should be able to do this. Paul agrees to a certain extent. He says in chapter 8 that food doesn't bring us close to God. We aren't worse off if we don't eat it, and we're not better off if we do eat it. It's just food. So Paul would really agree with their assessment of this. It's probably fine for you to eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols, at least if this were the only thing to take into consideration. But this issue is not that simple. Most issues aren't that simple. There are other things that we need to take into consideration when we think about things like this. And Paul points out that there are some in the Corinthian church that had been so used to idolatry up until this point in their walk with God that when they consume meat that has been sacrificed to idols, he says that their conscience is defiled. They feel guilt. They feel shame. They feel pulled back into the things that they had laid down in the past. There's something in them that can't let it go. They've been in it too long. And when they do things like this, it becomes a stumbling block to them. And knowing that this isn't an issue that we regularly face in this time and in our culture, I mentioned the idea of an alcoholic and having a drink. And is it wrong for a Christian to have a drink? Is it sinful to have a sip of alcohol? And I said to that, no, it's not sinful. Nothing in the Bible says that a sip of alcohol or a drink of alcohol is sinful, but being drunk is sinful, and we're told not to do that. And so can a Christian have a drink? And the answer to that question is yes, but should you do it in the presence of someone who has struggled with alcohol in their past? And the answer is no, you shouldn't do it if you're in the presence of someone who has struggled with alcohol in their past, or if, it, or if the idea of that brings them into a, a remembrance of the life that they have left behind, things that they have tried to get away from. And when we hear this, a lot of people will sometimes have this idea of that's a them problem, right? If you can't deal with it, then why do I have to give up my freedoms because you have a problem? I have freedom in Christ. I have rights that say that I can do these things. And if they can't handle it, then they shouldn't do it. But that should not limit my ability to do these things. I shouldn't be limited by my ability to eat the meat sacrificed to the idol by someone else's conscience. And this is where Paul is going to disagree adamantly. He says, we've no longer gone into the, the realm of knowledge here. We're moving into the realm of love. Your knowledge of the truth does not change the fact that you need to love someone else well when they struggle with some of the things that you are willingly do. You're willingly doing. Right, this is an issue of loving a weaker brother or sister in Christ well. 
And Paul says we should be willing to give up every single right that we have as a Christian in order to love someone well. Paul said if meat's the problem, he'll never eat meat again. If that's going to make a weaker brother or sister in Christ stumble, he said, I'll go vegetarian. Paul then goes on in chapter 9, what we talked about last week, uh, and he gives us an example of his time in Corinth of what it looks like to lay down your rights for the well-being of others. Paul's not one who is just going to tell you to do something and then be hypocritical about it and not do the thing that he has called us to do. When Paul was planning the church in Corinth, Paul didn't take any money from the Corinthians to live on while he was doing the work. He had every right to be paid by the church for the ministry that he was doing there. And yet Paul chose to be bivocational, meaning that he worked on tents during the day and he shared the gospel on, at, on, at night and on the weekends in the synagogue so that people could hear the truth about their need for a Savior. He worked extra hard so that there wouldn't be any stumbling blocks in front of the Corinthian church for the work that he was doing there. He did this so that he could remove any potential hurdles to salvation that might be there contextually based on who he was ministering to. He didn't want anybody to say, the only reason why you're doing this is because you get a paycheck. You don't actually believe what you say. You're only in it for the money. Paul says, okay, just so you can't say that, I won't take any money from you. I'll work on my own and I will minister to you outside of that. Whatever it takes to make sure that there are no stumbling blocks is what Paul is striving for here. Paul points out, again, at the beginning of chapter 9, he had every right to be paid for this ministry that he was doing, but Paul says, if that's a hang-up for you, I won't take it. I'll do whatever is necessary. I will lay that down for your benefit. In our passage this morning, Paul is continuing with that thought. He shows us through his life and efforts in ministry, the path that we should all be willing to walk as well. Take a look at verse 19. In verse 19, Paul shows us how he lives his life for the sake of having the gospel reach the lost or to encourage the weak in Christ. Whatever it takes, whoever he's working with there he says although I am free from all and not anyone's slave I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people Paul has no one to answer to other than Christ for how he lives his life or executes his ministry there's no one who tells him what to do there's people that keep him accountable people that keep him in check but no one has the authority to tell Paul what to do you will go here you will do this other than Jesus And yet Paul says he is willing to lay down his freedom so that he can try to remove any hurdles preventing other people from coming to know Christ. In verse 20, Paul says to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. Paul says he was willing to subject himself to certain parts of Jewish culture to avoid issues that create unnecessary incidents among the Jewish people. Paul was Jewish, but in Christ, Paul had been set free from all aspects of the ceremonial law that we find in the Old Testament. 
He no longer has to make sacrifices for sin because Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for his sin. One sin, one and done. One sacrifice, one and done. He doesn't have to continually sacrifice animals on the altar to cover his sin. Jesus covered it all. He no longer has to go through the purification rituals because when he put his faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness was applied to him. So he is forever and always purified from all sin and nothing can make him unclean. He doesn't need to do these things anymore. Paul knows this. He could spend all of his time arguing and advocating for his rights in Christ. I don't have to go this route anymore. I am free in Christ. I can do what I want. You can't make me do any of this. Paul could argue all of that, but Paul says, I laid down my rights and I picked up some of the burden of their expectations so I wouldn't be a hindrance to the gospel. We see this lived out by Paul in Acts 21. In Acts 21, verses 15 to 25, Luke tells us this. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought with us Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what's to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So Paul has a reputation. Whether that reputation is true or not, that reputation is beginning to precede him into the ministry that he's walking into. And the leaders in Jerusalem, they recognize this and they're thinking, hey, what do we have to do to, to get this stigma away? It continues in 23, it says, therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. Rumors are going around about Paul that he's telling the the Jews to abandon the law of Moses and you know, for all we know, Paul might have been telling the Jewish people that they are no longer under the ceremonial law because Jesus fulfilled it. That's true. But either way, the town is talking, and that means that Paul is now a distraction. He's a distraction to the gospel at this point among the Jews. Can anyone hear anything that he has to say about the gospel now that they believe that he's teaching Jewish people to abandon their culture and to abandon their Jewish rights? To avoid this, a request is made that Paul goes through a purification ritual to show that he has not abandoned the law of Moses. What's Paul to do here? He doesn't need to do this anymore. He's free in Christ, set free from all need of these purification rituals. 
He has no need to do this. He knows the truth. The purification rites don't amount to anything. All I'm doing is washing my hands. It's only a relationship with Christ that can make someone go from unclean to clean. Not the type of water, how many times you wash your hands, or the prayer that you mutter while you do it. It's only a relationship with Christ that can remove the guilt that we have from sin. No sacrifice can do that. In Paul's mind, he might be thinking these purification rituals are a waste of time. But does he make this argument? Is he willing to square off on this particular issue? Is he willing to disassociate with an entire group of people to make sure that they know his rights as a Christian? No. What does Paul do? Paul goes to the temple and he participates in the purification rites. Even though the Messiah has come and perfectly atoned for sin, Paul goes through the purification rites. Why? So that his rights as a Christian do not get in the way of the message of salvation through faith in Christ. He's willing to do whatever's necessary. Paul goes on to say in verses 21 and 22 that he has this exact same mentality for everyone that he meets. He says, to those who are without the law, the one like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. The people that Paul refers to here are who are without the law are Gentiles. And that includes everyone except for the Jews. A Gentile is everyone who is not Jewish. So if you've got someone from a non-Jew from China, Africa, Afghanistan, Britain, America, Antarctica, doesn't matter. If they are not Jewish, they are a Gentile. So he's saying, I'm including every single person on the planet. No matter who the person is, whether they are Jew or Gentile, when Paul meets someone, he considers what needs to be done to remove unnecessary offense from the gospel. What are some of the things that you might trip over in this gospel message from my life that would keep you from hearing what I have to say? The gospel itself is offensive. The gospel itself is difficult to hear for a heart that is lost, dying, and going to hell. And there's no avoiding that. You cannot, if you try to take the offense out of the gospel, you turn it into something else. And you take all the power away from it. The gospel is offensive. Telling people that they are sinners worthy of death, worthy of hell, worthy of eternal separation from God, that's not a popular message. And there's no way that you can sugarcoat that in a way that is going to make it more palatable to people who are far from God. We should be ashamed when we try. But there are, and there are plenty of people who trip over that. Right? They don't like being told that they can't live their life however they want. They don't like the notion that there is a holy and righteous judge who will hold every single one of us accountable for every single sin that we commit. They don't like that. But it's true. But we also have a holy, or, or, or a just, 
merciful, gracious God who is willing to take that punishment on Himself so that we can have access to Him again. This is the stuff that people should be tripping over, not the rights that we have as believers in Christ. Paul wants to make sure that the only thing that people are tripping up over when he shares this message is the gospel. Paul says that whatever you need him to be in order for you to hear the truth, Paul is willing to endure it. Do you need Paul to give up meat? Done. Do you need Paul to give up being paid by the church so that there's no question about his love for them, no question about his willingness to do them because he believes the message? Done. Does Paul need to go through a purification ritual to get, keep from giving offense to anyone? Done. Whatever it takes to make sure that message is clear. Paul doesn't care what it costs him. He just wants to win people to Jesus. Now, he does say one thing here in verse 22 that I want to clarify. It's a statement that he makes where he says, I have become all things to all people so that I, by every possible means, save some. If we take this verse out of context from the rest of Scripture, it could be interpreted that Paul believes that he is the source of salvation. That salvation comes through him, through his effort. And if you read it alone without the rest of Scripture around it, you could interpret it that way. But if you read the rest of Paul's writings, there's no way that you can think that Paul claims to be the source of salvation for people. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And also in Romans 10, 13 to 15, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him if they have not, they have not believed in, and how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Paul does not think that he is the one saving people. He's the one telling people how to be saved. He's telling them about the beautiful atoning sacrifice of Christ. That is the only hope of salvation. And he tells us in verse 23 that the reason why he does all of this is because he wants to share in the blessings of the gospel and he wants us to share in that blessing as well. Look at what he says in verses 24 to 27. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. In these verses, Paul begins using sports terminology to emphasize what it looks like to win in this life. From these references, we can ascertain that there is a valuable prize for winning. And Paul wants everyone in the church at Corinth, and he wants everyone here at Oak Grove to understand that and to strive to win the prize. The gift that we have in Christ and the treasures that we have in heaven are greater than anything this world has to offer. 
It's worth every sacrifice. To give up your time, your talent, your treasure, it's worth giving it all up to pursue that prize. To pursue that treasure. Give it everything you've got to win this race. Be willing to lay it all down to win this race. He says, exercise self-control. Get yourself under control. You know the things that you struggle with. Do your best through the power of the Holy Spirit to get that under control. Rein in those sinful habits. Flee from some of the stuff that you know is tempting you throughout the course of your life. Bring yourself under self-control. And the only way that you're going to be able to do that is if you keep your eyes on the imperishable prize. Everything that this world has to offer is going to be burned up. You will take none of it into eternity. And Paul says, focus on eternity. This life is so short. What are you looking at? At best, 90 years? 100 years? And you're going to give up eternity or treasures in eternity for the things that you can hold on to here in this life? It's a, it's a bad trade. This, that, the idea of that reminds me of Esau trading in his birthright to Jacob so that he could have a bowl of soup. You're giving up your position in this family. You're giving up your inheritance for this family so that you can eat a bowl of soup. And that's what it's like when we give up the treasure in heaven, when we give up the imperishable prize for the things of this world. It's like taking a bowl of soup and they're saying, I'll give you everything that you could possibly imagine. You're going, well, I'm kind of hungry. Could I have a bowl of soup right now instead of those things? It's ridiculous. I mean, can you really not see beyond the immediacy of your rumbly tumbly to see the greater prize in eternity? We have to have a proper focus. Paul says, get it together. He says he's not running aimlessly or as one that's beating the air. He said he is disciplining his body and bringing it under strict control so that he will not be hypocritical in his preaching. He is making sure that his life reflects his message. He doesn't want to be disqualified by not living out the message that he's proclaiming to the lost or to those who are weak in Christ. He's willing to live, give up everything, to put down any and all unnecessary freedoms and rights so that he might win some people to Christ. Whatever it takes. To contextualize this, I want, I want to give you some insight into how I have tried to do this in my ministry as well. All right, so the things that I do to minister here, the things that I do when I go to speak at other churches, there's some questions that I always ask. Every time somebody offers me an opportunity to speak, I ask several questions. What's the dress code? What, what do you want me to wear? Because I will wear it. What translation of the Bible should I use? Do you give an invitation at the end of your service? 
or not? If you do, how many verses of just as I am should I make people sit through before I let them go home? Why do I do that? Because I don't want the message of hope getting lost in those other distractions. Let me be clear. I hate wearing a jacket and tie. I hate it. I am hot-natured, and I burn up when I preach in a jacket. It cooks me from the inside out. I hate wearing a tie. It makes me feel like I'm being strangled. But would I wear those things if it helps to keep from being a distraction from the gospel, I certainly will. Gladly. Would love to. So that it doesn't distract from the message. Would I choose to? Absolutely not. Never do that voluntarily. But I'm willing to do it if I have to. If I preach a funeral, I ask this a similar question. Why? Because the reality of life and death is tangible in that moment. Everyone there is thinking about life. Everyone there is thinking about death. They begin to start questioning eternity in those moments. And I don't want them distracted from that because I'm not wearing a tie. Focus on the message. Stay in the moment. I don't want to be a distraction for you. What does a distraction look like? It doesn't have to be anything big. Let me show you one. He just put on a hat in church. Let me ask you a question. Did anything change in this moment? Did my heart for you change? Did my heart for the gospel change? Nothing changed other than the fact that I put on a hat. But we are in a culture that has said, when you walk into a a building, having a hat on is disrespectful and you need to take that off your head. What if I dared to utter a prayer with this on my head? Is God doing this? Not until you take the hat off. Not until you take the hat off. I will not listen. But, because I know that this would be a distraction to people, I don't wear a hat when I preach. I'm willing not to do that. That's an easy sacrifice. I love wearing hats. I was wearing that hat when I wrote this sermon. But I will gladly lay that down for you. I will gladly put that down so that I am not a distraction to you. What about you guys? What are you willing to put down in your life so that you are not a distraction to the gospel? What are you willing to sacrifice so that people can hear the gospel? Time, talent, and treasure. I say it all the time. What are you willing to give up? Do you give up anything? Do you give up anything to prepare to share the message? Do you give up the willingness to be embarrassed so that you can go share that message? Do you potentially sacrifice relationship so that you can share that message? What are you willing to do to get the message of the gospel out there? I want us to have a heart that says, I will do anything just to have the opportunity to present the gospel and have it not be distracted from by something else that I do. I will give up meat. I will give up a paycheck. 
I will go to, through the purification rites. I won't wear a hat when I preach. Whatever it takes to get the message of the gospel out there and not be a distraction. I pray that we have a heart that desires that more than anything else in this life. Let's pray together. Father, it's my desire that we would have a ministry from this church that goes into the world and is willing to lay down whatever we have to so that we can present the gospel without distraction. I pray that we would do our best to remove whatever stumbling blocks that we have so that the only thing offensive about what we present is the gospel itself. And Lord, then it is the work of the Holy Spirit on the hearts of those that we share with that does the work of salvation. We can't save people. We can just be faithful about sharing the message. And I pray that we would be faithful in that. That we would realize that we are running a race for a prize that is inconceivable. And I pray that we would not trade that for anything perishable in this life. Help us to see that clearly. We need the Holy Spirit's work in our heart for that as well. I pray that you would light a fire in us that cannot be quenched unless we preach the gospel as Paul talked about last week. And I pray that people see something different in us. They see that we're not people who have to have things our way, that we're willing to lay things down for the benefit of the, those around us. Those who are lost, those who are weak in their faith, we're willing to do whatever is necessary. Well, we can't do this without you, though. So we ask for your help. It's in your son's precious holy name that I pray. Amen.